0: To placate Ira, let me introduce myself. My name is Rabbi Yakov Wolby. I'm sitting in the glorious Torch Center in Houston, Texas. I work for Torch. Torchweb.org. This is the Parsha podcast. Every week, we talk about the Parsha. We have three episodes. On Sunday, we have the rebroadcast. and That's designed to cover the whole Parsha in about an hour. And then, On Tuesday, we release the episode from 5781 once again, and then early Thursday morning, with the help of the Almighty, we release a new episode. This is the Parsha Podcast. Listen to some of my other shows and the shows of my colleagues here at Torch, and I appreciate your listenership. Now, speaking of Torch, I want to remind you that every year we do one big fundraiser, And that's scheduled for the middle of February. And it's one of those fundraising campaigns where every donation is either doubled or tripled or quadrupled. Every year we do it a little bit differently. And we're already preparing for this mega event. This is the fundraiser that really covers the majority, the bulk of our yearly expenses. And we try to go really hard for one day. Or one week or one month, but one campaign and uh, really to try to reach out to everyone and to try to solicit everyone and to get everyone on board to support the great work of Torch for another year. Now, during this campaign, we always release like a promotional video just to kind of highlight some of the things that we do here and some of the impact that your support has for our mission. And I've asked in the past for some testimonials from y'all. And I spoke to my colleague, the great average rabbi, Rabbi Bosco. He's going to spin up something really wonderful for our video, as he always does. So I want to reach out again. If you could please send me a video Talk about how the podcast has helped you, how it has enlightened you, entertained you, educated you, made you reconnect with your heritage, whatever it is. Share it with me. If it's video, is great. Audio is also great. A written testimonial is also acceptable. But if you don't want to do that and you want to go easy, just send me a picture of yourself with some headphones in or listening to the podcast, I'm going to ask my colleague, Rabbi Busco, to weave those into the video so that way people could see a face, they could put a face to the listener or the listeners. Send something. My email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. And if you don't remember my email address in every podcast episode, if you scroll down, you can look at the description, and in the description you can find my email address Send me an email. Well, it's finally here. The actual Exodus. The book is titled The Book of Exodus. And in our parsha, the Jewish people, they have spent 210 years in Egypt. And now it is time to leave. That's very dramatic. And they leave with great fanfare. We have the final three of the plagues in our parsha, And... After spending hundreds of years in Egypt, the nation coalesces together and exits with an outstretched arm. Today I want to focus on one of the angels of the Exodus. It's a subject that admittedly we have touched upon in the past, but I want to expand upon it today. Before the Exodus, there is a flurry of activity Moshe, of course, started his mission, and it took a while for it to pick up some momentum. The first time he reached out to Pharaoh, Pharaoh made the situation of the Jewish slaves even worse. Their situation exacerbated. But then, once the people had kind of given up on redemption, redemption began. And incidentally, this is a pattern Rambam tells us and others as well. Redemption actually begins once you've given up, once the Jewish people cannot even hear the words of Moshe, because they're so exasperated and so overworked, shortness of breath. Once they've given up and they do not rely, they cannot rely on any salvation, that's when the Almighty swoops in. And we have the plagues, and the plagues are achieving multiple goals. They're, of course, humbling Pharaoh, even ridiculing Pharaoh, as we read it in our parsha. But they're also educating the nation. The nation is being shown the grandeur and the dominion of God. He controls everything. And Pharaoh is just a tool, an implement in the hands of the Almighty. And right before the actual Exodus, Moses is told about the laws of the new moon to manage the calendar, and then he's instructed to go tell the Jewish people to do the pastoral offering. Select a sheep or a goat and prepare it, oversee it, guard it for four days. Tie it to the bed, the Midrash tells us. Guard it from being blemished, inspected every day for any blemishes. And then, on the day before the Exodus, you slaughter said animal, and you roast it on a spit. You cannot cook it. it. has to be nice and crispy. And then you eat it that night with pre-designated parties. You have to decide ahead of time who's part of this cohort, who's part of this group. And once those predetermined people get together and they spend the night together and they don't leave the house and they place the blood of the pastoral sacrifice on the doorpost and on the lintel and they eat that crispy pastoral offering. It is interesting, just as an aside, that for thousands of years, the Jewish people did the pastoral offering every Pesach. Of course, the Seder that we celebrate on Pesach every year, is supposed to be reminiscent of the feast that our ancestors had every Pesach in Jerusalem. And it was done almost the same way. There are some differences that we shall see. But it was done the same way. You get together with a group, with a cohort, and you get a sheep, and you slaughter it the day before Pesach, and you roast, it's got to be roasted, it can got be cooked, it's got to be nice and crispy. And then you eat it that night, and you remember, you reminisce, and you try to relive the Exodus and tap into its wonderful energy and power. But that all happened before the Exodus. Also, the day before the Exodus, there was a mass circumcision. The first mitzvah that the Almighty gave to Abraham was the mitzvah of circumcision. And this mitzvah, of course, is a very powerful mitzvah. The Talmud tells us that it's equal to all the other mitzvahs. And it really identifies Abraham and his descendants as being the people of the Almighty. And it also symbolizes what we're trying to do, what we're trying to accomplish as a nation. We're trying to reveal the crown of God in the world. In Egypt, this practice waned. There were still some people who circumcised, most notably the Levites. They circumcised in Egypt, but the rest of the Jews were uncircumcised. And now it's time to fix that. The day before the Exodus, before they leave Egypt, there's national mass circumcision. And Rashi tells us something very fascinating and intriguing. This is to chapter 12, verse 6. You're supposed to guard and inspect and oversee the animal for four days. And Rashi notes that this instruction, this commandment to watch the animals that you're going to select for your cohort, watch it for a couple of days before the actual day of the Exodus, before you slaughter it. This is unique to the paschal sacrifice done in Egypt. For thousands of years, you would get your animal the day before Pesach. You can maybe bring it with you from your home. You can maybe purchase it in Jerusalem. But there's no requirement to acquire it four days prior. As long as you have the animal and it's been designated and you have your predetermined cohort, it can be used for the pastoral sacrifice. But in Egypt, you had to select it and protect it and oversee it and guard it and inspect it for four days prior. What's the reason? So Rashi quotes the Midrash, and the Midrash says something very fascinating. The Jewish people were always designated to be in a foreign land and tormented and oppressed and enslaved And then they're supposed to leave with great wealth amidst great miracles. That was already predetermined. That is what was promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 15 in the covenant of the parts. Now the time was ripe for the redemption. Now's the time when redemption is on the docket. Like we mentioned, the Jewish people had given up, and that was a prerequisite. Moshe was selected. He's the right person to lead the Jewish people. The Ten Plagues had prepared the Jewish nation to be in the right frame of mind to be able to leave. Everything is ready to go, but the Jewish people cannot leave. They are not properly positioned for redemption. And the reason why is because they were spiritually naked, in the words of the prophet. They were naked. They were exposed. They were spiritually vulnerable. And the reason why is because they had no mitzvos. And absent mitzvos, they were not capable of being redeemed. If they don't have mitzvos, they have to stay in Egypt. And therefore, in order to remedy this problem—the problem of it's the right time for redemption, but they're not qualified because they don't have the mitzvos—the Almighty gives them two mitzvos, two mitzvos to occupy themselves with: the two bloods, the blood of the pastoral offering Dampesach, Pesach, and the blood of the circumcision. Dam Mila. And thanks to these two mitzvahs, these two bloods, of course, with the crisp, roasted, pastoral sacrifice, the Jewish people merited to leave Egypt. Moreover, they had to withdraw their hand from the idols. The sheep were deified in Egypt, and the Jewish people Were idol worshippers like their Egyptian neighbors. They were immersed in idolatry. And therefore, for four days, they had to withdraw their hands, so to speak, from the idols. They had to guard and protect and oversee and inspect the sheep that were deified in Egypt for four days, with the foreknowledge that they're going to slaughter their erstwhile. Deities, And they're going to designate what they had previously worshipped as deities. They're going to designate that for a mitzvah for God. That's what Rashi tells us. There's a, there's a system for redemption. There are some preconditions for redemption. If you are spiritually naked, you're not a candidate to be redeemed. Redemption was predicated on a series of mitzvahs. A, of course, you have to withdraw from the deity. The sheep were worshipped, and now has to be designated for a mitzvah for God. And then you have the two bloods, the blood of the circumcision and the blood of the paschal sacrifice that's roasted and rendered nice and crisp. And it's got to be eaten indoors with a special blood smear at the doorposts. And then God will come and pass over our homes and leave us elevated from the experience, leave us elevated from the redemption, but unscathed from the terror that he is going to unleash on Egypt. And therefore, for four days, you guard the Pesach, you prevent it from getting blemished, And you focus on these mitzvahs, on the circumcision, and on the pastoral sacrifice. The exodus could not have happened absent these two mitzvahs. Yes, it's the time to be redeemed. They're destined to be redeemed. But in order for redemption to happen, you have to be occupied with mitzvahs. And the Almighty gave him mitzvahs, the bloods, the blood of the Passover sheep, and the blood of the circumcision. This idea, it's just a fascinating idea. And every year when we read this part of the Torah, it's almost like a, like a watershed moment in the Torah. The Exodus is, is kind of the beginning of the founding of our people. We were servants to Pharaoh in Egypt. And now we're going to leave And we're going to become servants to God. And very, very quickly, we're going to be very starkly differentiated from our Egyptian overlords. We're going to see them at the splitting of the sea be crashed down by the waves and destroyed. And then very quickly, the nation transitions into this lofty supernatural state. We're going to be eating manna, magical, Angelic food, drinking water from a rock. How cool is that? Enshrouded, surrounded by these clouds of glory and the pillar of fire at night. And we're gonna have motion in our midst. And we're very quickly gonna arrive at Sina, but first we're gonna have a war with a Malik that's gonna be waged on a spiritual level, in a spiritual dimension. We have a nation here that needs to separate themselves from idols. Meaning that even after a whole year of the the plagues, the nation still has some sort of affinity, some sort of association with idols. And we have to kind of remove that. We have to separate ourselves from that. We have to sever our ties with our previous deities. And then we have these mitzvahs, the bloods, the two bloods, the blood of the sacrifice, the blood of the circumcision, and with this, we're qualified we're qualified to embark upon this incredible journey that's going to reach its apotheosis of course, at Sinai. This is where it all starts. It could not have happened absent these two mitzvos so in effect what's what's happening with these mitzvos is they are allowing they are facilitating they are enabling everything else that comes subsequently to happen. And thus, these ceremonies, these rituals, of course we don't call mitzvahs rituals, but these processes that they're doing must be very significant. They must be very powerful, because these are the tailor-made mitzvahs to enable everything that will ensue. And it doesn't seem to be something so immediately evident what is so special about them. Every mitzvah, of course, is special. study of the Torah, of course. We're obsessed with Torah study. We're actually going to read about the tefillin later on in our parsha, the mezuzah. But there's a lot of mitzvahs that you would imagine would be candidates to prime us, to enable us. have the exodus. Yet the Torah tells us very specifically there are conditions for redemption. What are the conditions that must be met? The bloods, the bloods, the bloods of the circumcision and the blood of the crispy pastoral sacrifice. What is the deeper meaning behind this? Now, as I mentioned, this is a subject that we've spoken about in the past, Two years ago, we spoke about how these mitzvos are all about self-sacrifice. When you circumcise, it's almost like the closest thing that you can get to actual self-sacrifice. Of course, the idea of severing yourself from the, your deity, obviously that's a precondition for the Exodus. But we talked about a couple of years ago how with these two mitzvahs, The Jewish people demonstrated that the ember of Abraham is still strong within them. And the only way the Exodus could have happened is if the nation displayed, they manifested, they demonstrated that the qualities of Abraham, the, the kernel of Abraham still reigns within them. That's an idea that we shared in the past. Today, I want to share a few more angles to this question. Let's begin. We'll start off with something nice and neat, courtesy of the Kliyakar. I found this to be very interesting. When Moshe, at the beginning of the parasha, chapter 10, verse 10, Moshe went to Pharaoh and said to him, let us go. And Pharaoh says, it's a terrible idea. Don't you see that Ra, that this force is opposite you? There is this blood star that's in your way. And when you leave, it's not going to end well for you because you're going to be slaughtered. Now, Rashi already addresses this by saying that when, when Pharaoh and his stargazers and his fortune tellers And his uh, clairvoyant future seers, when they saw this star, they thought it meant that the Jewish people are all going to be slaughtered if they leave. And Moshe used this as a way to get out of the nation being destroyed with the synagogue calf. But the Kaliachar says something very uh, similar, but but different. He says that this force that Pharaoh... And his necromancers and gurus saw it's the force of what's called Madim, which is Mars, which is a certain astrological sign that indicates something red and something bloody. And the Talmud tells us that the influence of this sign Someone who is born under the influence of this sign, they are going to be a bloodshedder. But they get to choose what manner of bloodshed they will operate in. What type of bloodshed will they engage in? They could be either a butcher, or a mohel, or a ritual circumciser, or they could be a thief and a murderer. Some people they they have this love of violence. They love it. And that's because they're born like that. Some people are like that. For me, I have a very hard time with blood. If they ever take even a small vial of blood, I, I kind of f- feel faint. I'm not the kind of person to donate blood. Even the sight of blood, I can't look at it. Even my own children, by their breasts by their circumcision, I was not able to look at what was happening some people, they love it. Yeah, the gorier, the better. Show me the blood spurtling. Ah, I love that. Why is that? Because we're all different. And everyone's designed differently. And there is a force that is present in a person naturally. And some people have this force that mandates, that indicates that they will be someone who enjoys blood and bloodshed. But that does not determine whether or not they will be righteous or wicked. They could use this to be righteous and use their desire for blood to become a mole to do a great mitzvah or to be a surgeon, which is, of course, productive. Butcher, which is, you know, nothing wrong with being a butcher, but it's a way to kind of be able to play with slabs of meat and to slice away and to see all the, the guts and the gore. Or they could use it for a terrible end. They could be a criminal. Says the Kliyakr, before the Jewish people left Egypt, they had to neutralize this force, this blood star that Pharaoh and his people saw, they had to neutralize it. And therefore the mighty gives them two mitzvot, specifically mitzvot that involve blood, the blood of the pastoral offering, the blood of circumcision. You got to slaughter the pastoral offering. And the midst of circumcision, of course, demands that you draw some blood. And through this process, you will have fulfilled the prophecy, so to speak, of the star that Pharaoh saw. And now the path is clear. This is a very clever answer. I enjoyed it. I saw it for the first time this year. And I figured I'd share it with you, my dear friend. There was something Dangerous, something ominous, something foreboding in their future. Blood. And Pharaoh and his people interpreted it as death. That's why Pharaoh advised them against going. By undertaking the mitzvahs that relate to blood, they were able to redirect, so to speak, that prophecy, if you will, that sign towards a harmless and even, of course, a productive blood. That's an idea. That I saw. Let's share some other ideas. The morale says something very interesting. In Egypt, the Jewish people had become servants of Pharaoh, and they become such committed, so to speak, servants of Pharaoh. They had ceased to have their own independent identity. They had adopted the slave mindset where Pharaoh is their benefactor almost. And the notion of freedom, the notion of independence, the notion of ever being released or redeemed from their predicament, that had gone by the wayside. That was no longer present. And the objective of the Exodus is not to take these slaves and turn them into non-slaves, but to take these slaves of Pharaoh and to turn them into slaves of God. And the way you do that is with bloods, the blood of circumcision, and the blood of the pastoral offering, the crispy pastoral offering. And he explains someone has a servant, the servant gets branded. We are servants of God, and we too are branded as such. And how are we branded as servants of God? What is the part of our religious experience that equates to, that amounts to a brand where we embed in ourselves, so to speak, our fealty, our total submission to God, that is the circumcision. When someone circumcises, they are branding themselves, they're etching into their flesh a sign of their commitment, of their allegiance to God. And he quotes the thing that we say in the Birk in the grace after the meals. It defines the, bris, the circumcision, the circumcision, the covenant, that you have etched, that you have embedded in our flesh. To be a servant, to be a slave of God, You need to be branded as such. The Exodus marked our transition from being servants to Pharaoh to be servants of God. And before that, we have to make sure that we qualify to be servants of God. We have to be thus branded. But that's not enough. A sign, a brand, is insufficient. We need to actually engage in servitude and he points out that everywhere in the torah the word avodah meaning servitude or work that a servant does that term is associated with the pastoral offering and therefore we need both we have to be a the person our identity has to be re Labeled, so to speak, from being a servant of Pharaoh to being a servant of God. And that focus on, on a person in their entirety. The, the, the identity of the person is now as a servant. But also our behavior has to be changed. And we have to behave as servants, not just to rebrand ourselves, to change ourselves in like holistically, but also our behavior has to be Conforming to that, and that is the blood of the pastoral offering. What he's saying is something very interesting. The Jewish people, they needed to do one thing to be worthy of the Exodus. They had to be slaves of God. They had to kind of relinquish their own identity, relinquish their previous identity, and adopt a new one, one of total subservience and submission to the Almighty. And what does that entail? What are the components of being a servant of God? There's one general thing, and then there is one specific thing. The general thing is your identity, who you are. And the second part is, what do you do? Who you are, that was changed from being a servant of Pharaoh to being a servant of God via the circumcision, via the blood of the circumcision. And what you do, how you operate, how you behave, that was changed with the pastoral offering. You are submitted to the Almighty in your behavior. A very interesting idea. That the Maharal tells us, this is the initiation of the relationship that we have with our Creator. What makes us the Jewish nation? What are the characteristics of the Jewish nation? What do we stand for? Maharal gives us a definition. We are servants of God, even slaves of God. Our identity is that. Our behavior is that. Of course, this is in in an ideal sense. When we were founded, what what was the initiation? The initiation was servants of God, thus branded, who behave in a way that's conforming to that. Those two are necessary for the Exodus. And there's no way for us to undo that. This is who we are. This is what our nation is. This, I think, gives more insight to the challenge of the exodus. We know that 80% of the Jews didn't make it. Why didn't they make it? Why did they want to stay in Egypt? It seems much better to leave, obviously. I think in this light, the way Maral frames the whole exodus, we can maybe understand what their resistance, their reticence was to not participate in the exodus. It's very demanding. You have to change your whole identity to be a servant of God. It seems, of course, very restrictive. And you have to change your behavior to make sure that it's conforming to your master. That's something that we bristle at. But this explains the context of the Exodus. Now it's interesting that in the Torah there are two positive mitzvot, two performative mitzvot that are so serious that if a person does not do it, they are liable to receive the punishment called kares, meaning that they get disenfranchised from the Jewish people. And what are these two mitzvot? These two performative mitzvot that are so serious that if a person doesn't do it, they are almost cut off, disenfranchised from the nation? You guessed it. It's these two mitzvahs, the two bloods, the blood of circumcision and the blood of the pastoral offering. What does it mean to be part of this franchise, if you will, of the Jewish nation? What does it mean to be part of this great, glorious people? What's the definition? What's the headline of our nation? At the very founding, we discovered the answer, to be servants of God. And that is symbolized with the circumcision and with the pastoral offering. This is who you are. This is what you do. And that's if a person says, I'm not interested in these two mitzvot. I don't want to circumcise. I don't want to participate in the pastoral offering. Okay. You're opting out of the essence of this nation. And thus, you are cutting yourself off from this people. So it's interesting that these two mitzvot are the ones that are almost universally observed. Everyone has a Pesach seder. Everyone, not everyone, obviously, but it's common. Even people that don't observe Torah, the laws, Shabbos, study Torah. Even people that are very distant from observance of Torah law, these two, they cling to. And they may have a hard time explaining to you why these two are so important, but we know the answer. These two, that's where it all started. This is where the whole experiment of our nation began. And even though they don't understand it, there's something within them that's not willing to relinquish that, not willing to forego that, not willing to forfeit these headline mitzvahs, these mitzvahs that symbolize really what it's all about. A fascinating definition of the Exodus, what it's supposed to do to us, and also it, it puts our religion in this wonderful, neat context what it is, who we are, and what we're trying to do. And before the Exodus, before we can transition from being a nation that was subjected to Pharaoh to being the servants of God, we have to do these two things. That's the second idea on this. We'll get to it maybe in a little bit of a different angle in a little bit, I want to share two more ideas about this principle, the bloods and the crisp. The blood of the circumcision and the blood of the paschal offering that you must make really nice and crisp. My grandfather, blessed memory, quoted the Talmud. The Talmud tells us that the world of God does not operate the way the world that we inhabit operates. In our world, if you have an empty vessel, you can fill that vessel. If you have a full vessel, well, it's, it's been filled. There's no room to put anything else in it. If you have a glass of water, it's full of water. You can't add anything else. If you add anything else, it spills out. Says the Talmud, the Almighty it's the opposite. If it's empty, you cannot fill it. If it's full, now there's room to fill it. And what does this mean? What this is telling us is that the way spirituality is absorbed, it's the exact opposite of how physicality and, and materialism gets absorbed. If someone is spiritually empty, they have no mitzvos, no Torah, they're not at all living as a soul. And then you say, I have this wonderful mitzvah, I have this incredible insight, I, I read this wonderful piece of Talmud yesterday, I saw something so eye-opening, so engaging, so interesting, so earth-shattering. And you want to share that with someone who's spiritually empty, it just won't land Just won't land because with spirituality, only a full vessel can be a receptacle for spiritual greatness. Some, someone that's empty, someone that's not replete to some degree with already an appreciation for spiritual matters. They are not great candidates. For spiritual insights, and this obviously works the other way. If someone's full, if they are engaged, and they have they have a robust feeling of spiritual enrichment within them, they get less interested in all the petty nonsense of our world. Talk to them about. Uh, I don't know, ice cream or, uh, the news or politics or a TV show. It just, it does, it's not as interesting because the, their mind is full, meaning that it's engaged in the spiritual realm. And that's a much higher realm. And it just, it doesn't excite them anymore. In the words of Rambam, if you have a king who's involved in matters of state and statecraft and court, dealing with important themes, and you say, "Well, why don't we have a why don't we play some ball? Why don't we, why don't we play uh, play tennis?" Isn't it exciting to play tennis? Now, tennis is a lot of fun, as we know, and even a king should get some exercise. But the fascination, the obsession with college, football, or the NBA, someone's operating, someone's living with much more interesting things. If their vessel, so to speak, is full, that is just not going to capture their interest and their imagination. The Jewish people in Egypt, to a certain degree, they had an empty vessel. And they were not qualified for the redemption. The redemption amounted to an incredible rush of spiritual vitality and energy and power. To absorb that, you have to have a full vessel. And therefore, ahead of time, they had to fill the vessel. Because if the vessel's empty then the redemption, the exodus, will fall flat. Maybe we can say that the act of filling the vessel for the first time, that's an act where you're going to shed some blood. That's very painful. When you get this process started, however you do it, it's either this kind of blood or that kind of blood. There's got to be some self-sacrifice, some degree of of pain even involved. Someone who's empty, someone whose vessel's empty, they're not interested in Torah and mitzvot and connection with the Almighty and prayer and all the wonderful, enriching. We know they're enriching, but it doesn't speak to them. And the reason why it doesn't speak to them is because they're empty, they're Operating in a very physical plane. And therefore, when you get started, that first step is going to squeeze some blood out of you. It's got to be the blood of circumcision, the blood of pastoral sacrifice. It's going to demand some pain, difficulty. You have to overcome something. Perhaps this is why we circumcise our babies when they're eight days old. We want to fill them up with some degree of spirituality. If we wait until they're consenting adults, if you will, it might be too late. It might be too late because they don't have that grounding, that founding, filling, if you will, of their spiritual vessel. It is interesting. This is a, another wrinkle to this idea. If you read Rashi, Rashi says that they had no mitzvos to occupy themselves with. They needed mitzvos to occupy themselves with. And that's why they need to do these two mitzvos. I remembered, next week, we're going to read about the Jewish people after the splitting of the sea. And they traveled for three days without any water. And they ended up in a city called Mara. In the city of Mara, the water was bitter. And Moshe was shown a stick, and he threw the stick into the water, and the water sweetened. And the verse tells us there they were given some laws, and there they were tested. And Rashidir says a very similar use of terminology. There they got some laws, they got some portions of Torah to occupy themselves with. Here it says they got some mitzvahs to occupy themselves with. And there it says they got some Torah to occupy themselves with. And this is a subject we've spoken about in the past. And we've talked about the various mitzvahs they got. And why it uses the term to occupy themselves with. But I had another idea to maybe share the Jewish people are preparing for the Exodus. How do you prepare for the Exodus? You've got to occupy yourself with mitzvos. How do you prepare for Sinai, for the revelation of Sinai and the receiving of the Torah? You have to occupy yourself with something else. Maybe we can suggest when it talks about having a full vessel filling up your vessel so that you can be a receptacle for spiritual vitality. You have to fill that vessel with the precise things that you want. The Exodus was about the founding of the nation. And the verse tells us, chapter 13, verse 8, the reason why we had the Exodus was for the mitzvot. We have it backwards. When we celebrate Pesach, and we have the matzah, we have the maror, we have the whole ceremony, we think that we are remembering, reenacting the Exodus. And the reason why we have those mitzvot is to remember the Exodus. That's what we erroneously think. Look at Rashi, chapter 13, verse 8. Rashi says we have it exactly backwards. The reason why they might take us out of Egypt was for the mitzvot of Passover, was for matzah and for marar, and of course, for the pastoral offering. The goal of the Exodus was for the mitzvot. Perhaps using the terminology of the maharal, it was for us to be servants of God. And therefore, what do we fill ourselves up with? Well, before the Exodus, we engage with, we occupy ourselves with mitzvahs, because that's what we want. We want to have mitzvahs. And before Sinai, we occupy ourselves with Torah, because that is what we want at that time. When you want something from God, you first make it your pastime. You first fill yourself up to the best of your ability Fill up that vessel with what you want. And what you're engaged with, that is what God will bestow upon you. The vessel ought to be filled with the same thing that you seek to fill it with. This is a very interesting idea. It's a little bit of a deeper idea, but it's courtesy of my grandfather, blessed memory. And I think it's a valuable insight for us to understand the disparity that we see amongst people when it comes to matters of, of the spirit, matters of the soul, matters of Torah and Mitzvos. I had the great fortune of spending some years in Yeshiva. It's an unbelievable thing. You get there in the morning and you see people. I spend hours upon hours upon hours poring over ancient texts written in Aramaic and reading the commentaries that are a thousand years old and you have people that are enjoying every second of it and they do it for hours upon hours without stopping. When I was there, I had to stop. For, I need a coffee. Oh, I need to take a little walk. I drink some water. Maybe, as we say in yeshiva, chapa a to shmooze with someone. You see people who are loving every second of it. Where does it come from? It comes from having a full vessel. They have tapped into the spiritual way of things working, and that is when it's a full vessel, that's when it gets filled up. And someone who comes with an empty vessel, and you try, try to spend a half hour, try, you get someone with an empty vessel, try to spend a half hour studying Talmud. You don't you don't develop the taste for it. You don't you don't see the beauty in it. And you can imagine someone would spend a whole year studying one book and doing it for ten hours a day, twelve hours a day. It's because they have a full vessel. Very interesting idea. One more idea that I want to share with you. This is also courtesy of my grandfather, blessed memory. He says something very fascinating quote to the Talmud, the Talmud says that the Jewish people, we are beloved by God. Why are we beloved by God? Because the Almighty encircled us. He enveloped us with mitzvot. He gave us tefillin to put on our head. And then he gave us another tefillin to put on our arm. And then tzitzis on our garments and a mezuzah on our door. We're living in a world that is just replete with mitzvahs. Wherever we turn, we're surrounded by mitzvahs. And regarding this, David said that he praised God seven times for his wonderful commandments. David was so happy that he was surrounded with mitzvahs that he praised God seven times a day. I have praised you for your mitzvos. And then David went into a bathhouse. And in the bathhouse, he was naked. And he became very despondent and depressed and sad and worried. Because when he was in the bathhouse, he wasn't wearing his tefillin. Not the one in his head and not the one on his arm. And the bathhouse does not have a on the door. And the bathhouse, well, you're not wearing your tzitzis. So suddenly David's all worried. Wait a minute. Where are my reminders of God? Where is this environment that I was encircled with beforehand? And then David remembered that he still has a mitzvah with him. He remembered his circumcision. And then he was assuaged. Then he was mollified. Then he was placated. And regarding that he said, I'm going to praise you on the eighth. Very interesting Talmud in the book of Menachos on page 43b. And my grandfather, blessed memory, deduced from this Talmud, it starts off by saying, the Almighty loves the Jewish people because he surround us, he encircled us with mitzvahs. Says my grandfather, blessed memory, there are two types of mitzvahs. There are mitzvahs that we are encircled with, we are surrounded with. And that type of mitzvah creates an environment in which we live. And then there are mitzvahs that are not around us, but they're within us. And that kind of mitzvah is symbolized by the circumcision. Mitzvahs are there to create two things. They're there to elevate us. Essentially, who we are should be elevated, should be revealed. The latent holiness that we all have within us should be brought to the surface. And that's one goal of mitzvahs. And the second goal of mitzvahs is to create an environment of holiness and righteousness. And every mitzvah can be classified as either an environmental mitzvah, meaning that it's a mitzvah that's there to surround us with holiness, or it can be an essential mitzvah, a mitzvah that's within us, that's there to reveal the inherent holiness that we have buried within us. Says my grandfather, a blessed memory, with the Exodus, the Jewish people needed both types of mitzvahs in order to initiate this transformation. They needed a mitzvah that is an environmental mitzvah, and they needed an essential mitzvah. And therefore, they needed the bloods, the blood of the circumcision, and the blood of the Paschal offering. In order for the Exodus to happen, you need both. You need to have the essential Abrahamic quality that we all have within us, the thing that elevates us, that says that you are the representative of God in the world. Says the Talmud, the Talmud tells us that Abraham sits on the doorstep of Gehenum of purgatory, and he does not allow anyone who is circumcised to go in there, the circumcision indicates that point of holiness that we have within us. It's not our environment. It's not a reflection of a given time or, or place that's been elevated. It's who we are. And wherever we go, we have it with us. And even once we leave this world and we are brought to heaven and we have to face judgment and a reckoning and an accounting of our behavior, even then, That essential mitzvah is with us. That's the circumcision. The pastoral offering. What do we do? We take the blood and we put it outside on our doorposts around us, surround us. And that is to symbolize the other element of mitzvahs. And only once we have them both can we be initiated into being the nation of God? And thinking about this idea, my grandfather, he elaborates upon it and takes it in a different direction. But this sounds like the other side of the coin of what Maral told us. Maral told us that we have two mitzvos: the blood of the circumcision and the blood of of the Paschal offering. And one symbolizes the brand of the servant, who we are. And that's the circumcision. That's the essential mitzvah. And one symbolizes what we do. What kind of environment do we live in? And that is symbolized by the Paschal offering. So these are two ways to say the same idea. And I think that this can be a very powerful Framing for how we can change and be transformed. If you want to change, you have to follow this pattern. There is who you are. There's your identity. And of course, the Jew's identity ought to be that of a servant of God. This is who we are. And we take that and we brand ourselves. And there's a second part. And that is, what do I do? In what kind of environment do I live? And of course, ideally, the Jew should say, well, I'm a servant of God. And I live in an environment that matches, that is congruent with that ideal. But this principle, I think, can be used in other areas. If you want to change, if you want to improve in any area, just as the Jewish people when they left Egypt, and they began this journey, this odyssey, this march of this great nation, they had to do two things on two different planes. Who you are essentially, and what you do, what's your behavior? What's your brand? What's your identity? And what are the things that you do? What is the environment in which you live? And what is so inseparably you? In every area of life, if we want to improve, we have to factor in these two components. The Gona Vilna said that if you want to improve any character, any behavior, the way you do it is you first change your assumed identity. You first say, I'm not this person. When we are stuck in a, in a habit, the things that we do, and we, we can't seem to kick that habit. This is who I am. Those words are really dangerous because they convey the message that this is my identity. And if that's your identity, then it's very hard to change that. The way you start a change is first by changing your identity. This is not who I am. I'm a different person. Yes, in the past, I was maybe a different person. I was someone who gets angry, who's impatient, who's not hospitable and kind or friendly. I'm a person who's speechless. Show in a row, does this, that, or the other. But today, I'm a new person. You change your identity. And once you change your identity, the next mission is to change your behavior. But both of them are indispensable for any grand transformation. You need to have both two bloods, the blood of the circumcision and the blood of the pastoral offering. we like to end the Parsha podcast with a question. We are of the belief that when you ask questions, you get sharper, you get more intelligent. It's portals to wisdom. And we also know that uh, when it comes to Torah, Torah raises your intelligence. It raises your IQ. So we have one idea. Maybe there were a few ideas in this edition of the Parsha podcast. But we like to also end off with a question. Here's the question. Chapter 11, verse 2, the verse tells us that the might tells Moshe, go to the Jewish people. And they should ask from their fellow, from their friends, the men from their friends, and the women from their friends, silver and gold vessels. God promised Abraham, when your children leave Egypt, they'll leave with great wealth. Well, now they're about to leave, and they are impoverished. How are they going to get this great wealth? Here's the solution go ask from your Egyptian neighbors. Hey, can I borrow your special stuff, your gold watch and your special cloths and garments and jewelry? And the Almighty will make the charm of the Jews so irresistible. They'll have such appeal in the eyes of their Egyptian neighbors that they will just give them whatever they ask for. That's the plan. And therefore, the Amari asks Moshe, please ask the Jews. He's pleading with him. I want to keep my word to Abraham. And they should ask from their fellow, from their friends, from their Egyptian friends and neighbors, they should ask for gold and silver vessels. And a lot of the commentaries are bothered by the use of term, Re'ehu, their friend. Jewish people were enslaved in Egypt. They were enslaved, and they were punished, and they were oppressed, and they were marginalized severely by the Egyptians. How can the Torah say, how can the al Moshe instruct the Jews to ask from their friends, the men from the men friends, from their Egyptian peers, and the women from their friends? How can sworn enemies be described as friends? So in the rebroadcast podcast, I believe I said from the Netziv, the Netziv says that during the plague of darkness, during the latter part of the plague of darkness, the Egyptians were immobilized. How did they eat? Well, they ate because their Jewish neighbors came and fed them. And that resulted in the building of a rapport, a friendship between the Jews and their Egyptian neighbors. And that's how they can be described as friends, which is a fascinating idea. And it makes you wonder why they had to be friends at the end of this. I I wonder, just thinking about this now, maybe this would make the experience of the Exodus a little bittersweet for the Jewish people if they just became friends now after decades and centuries of suffering under the thumbs of their Egyptian overlords. Now they're friends and now they have to leave and they have to witness the downfall of their newfound friends. But that's an Nitzv. I saw this here for the first time, I saw an idea from the Gona Vilna. He says that when the verse tells us, chapter 11, verse 2, that the Almighty tells Moshe, go tell the Jewish people that they should ask from their fellows, they should borrow from their fellows gold and silver vessels. That's not referring to the Egyptians. Don't ask from the Egyptians. They should ask from each other. And the idea behind that is, they should create a spirit of benevolence and generosity in the air. Go ask your fellow Jewish brethren, your friends, your brothers, your sisters. Ask them to borrow some gold and some silver. And that will create an environment of generosity. And that will eventually spill over that the egyptians as well will be generous what an idea the idea of course is very novel very novel interpretation of the verse but to me the most remarkable part of this is that if someone does something righteous good hospitable generous it creates this domino effect it, it 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 pays it forward, so to speak, because someone else will be inspired even in even even if they can't trace where the origin of that is. If you live in an environment of generosity and kindness and goodness and benevolence, if someone else is generous to someone else, you won't even know why, but that will affect you who are in their environs to be generous as well. And if somebody tells Moshe, go tell the Jewish people to borrow amongst each other gold and silver vessels, and that will create a feeling of camaraderie and brotherhood and goodness and benevolence that will spill over to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians want to get a slice of the action and they will want to give to the Jewish people because of this spirit of generosity that's in the air. And that's why they give the Jewish people gold and silver. And that's how you will clean house when you leave. What a fascinating and wonderful insight to end this edition of the Parsha Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this. It was a delight to record this. It wasn't as pleasurable, I must admit, to prepare for it. But that's my problem, not yours. Hope you enjoyed it. Have a fantastic rest of your day, a splendid and terrific rest of your week. And an incredible, inspirational, elevational, marvelous Shabbos upcoming. Send me your testimonials. Send me audio, video, written. Send me a picture. Rabbi Wolby at gmail.com. And please go with Help muddy. We will talk again next week.